Hello. Thanks for listening to this Dharma podcast. I hope you consider that in accordance with the Buddhist tradition, all of my work as a teacher is offered without charge and supported entirely by donations only. If you'd like to support this work, you'll find a PayPal button on dharmapunksnyc.com. I think we are familiar with the famous Cartesian, I think, therefore, I am, which is essentially a statement that epitomized the human tendency of placing thought at the very center of our perceptual experience. Much like we assumed that the earth was at the center of the universe because it seemed that all the stars and planets and sun revolved around us, but of course that wasn't the case. It seems to us that thought is at the epicenter of mind and that thought is in some way located behind the eyes, between the ears, And that this narrator function in the brain is not only narrating life, but is in some way making our choices, guiding our actions, is somehow static or stable over long periods of time. In other words, our thought faculty, the inner languaging or inner talk, not only narrates our experience, but it also claims that its words and ideas are the I, stable identity that makes Josh, Josh, and you, you, is somehow intricately bonded with our core identity or our sense of self. Again, we have this reverence for thought is based on the perception that my thoughts lie at the absolute centrality of my perceptual experience, again, behind the eyes, between the ears, and that this inner thought, which is uh, based on both uh, words, language, and images, is not only turning life into stories and ideas, but is also in some way making our decisions moving our bodies through space and time and providing us with a sense of identity or a sense of self. Now, interestingly, while this is a founding principle of Western uh, philosophy and and certainly up until Descartes, that thought was the single most salient, important feature of of the mind, In fact, in the Buddhist Dharma, dating back some 2,500 years, there wasn't a reverence for thought. In fact, the reverence for thought that we have was not found in the core tenets or principles that the Buddha laid out. Quite different, in fact. The Buddha proposed that the mind has no central governing, controlling entity whatsoever that there is nothing at the core of the mind that is making decisions on its own, that is moving our muscles, allowing us to make decisions. In fact, the Buddha taught, uh, far from it, that thought is one of five different components of the mind, the four others being body, sensations and its form, the form of the body, feelings, gut feelings, perceptions, which is the kind of way we mentally make shorthands about the world around us, and states of consciousness, which not only contain our emotions, but you know how tired, awake, whether we're anxious, whether we're settled and relaxed and so forth. So, You have these five different components, thought, body, feelings, perceptions, and states of consciousness. I don't know how I got six fingers, there's five. Uh, And states of consciousness. So, um, and the Buddha, more than that, saying that the mind is decentralized. There's no one element in control or uh, essentially responsible for creating, uh, you know, this sort of a governing entity. But he said in this famous teaching, the Anatta Lakana Sutta, that 
there's actually none of these five components could possibly provide us with a lasting stable sense of self or an identity that there's nothing in our experience that rises to the demands that we would expect a self to uh, provide. I'll, I'll, I'll read you a brief section of it. Um, the Buddha is, and this is one of like the earliest talks that the Buddha ever gave. I believe it's the second or thought, third talk of his tenure, his 40 year tenure uh, as a Buddhist teacher or as a teacher. And um, it's the first talk he gave where people became, uh, a large group of people became enlightened. So there's something very important about this talk to say the very least. The Buddha says to the gathering crowd of practitioners, is the form of your body permanent or impermanent? Is it subject to change? And people around him said, well, it's impermanent, it's subject to change. And he says, is your body subject to pain and on its own? And they say, yes. And then they say, now the Buddha responds, so is something that's impermanent and subject to change and subject to pain worthy of being regarded as your true self? And people say, no. And then he asks that about feelings. Are your feelings permanent or impermanent? And people would say they're impermanent, they change. And he says, are your feelings subject to change to, and become painful? And they say, yes. And then so he asks, he states again, so is something so impermanent, subject to change, subject to pain as your feelings, is that worthy of being regarded as your true self or your true identity? And the people around him say, no. And then he goes through the other three. He says, are your perceptions subject to change? Of course they are. Are you, you know, are your states of consciousness, are your thoughts subject to change and so forth. And each of these elements people agree are unstable. They're subject to become painful and they realize that none of their internal experience can rise to the level of being a core self. So again, the Buddha is basically saying that there is no fixed identity or self that is lasting and static. Now, that doesn't mean that in any given moment of our experience, we don't have a self. We always have a sense of self, but it's just not static. And sometimes our sense of self is based around our feelings. Sometimes it's based around our body state. Sometimes it's based around our thinking. Sometimes it's based around our states of consciousness and so forth. But they're changing. They're in flux. And this is a very important, it's impossible to overestimate how important this moment is in the history of both human psychology and philosophy. Why? Well, so it took 2,200 years before a Western philosopher would reach the same conclusion. That would, of course, be David Hume in 1738, The Treaties of Human Nature, where he too made the exact same proposition, which is known as the bundle theory in the West. He stated that the mind is simply a bundle of different perceptions without any unity or cohesive quality what we refer to as our self or identity is nothing but a changing flux of perceptions. Okay, well that's made uh, Hume in danger of being prosecuted for um, uh, going against the church and religion at the time, he had to be protected. Uh, and then it was another 150 years more than, yeah, 160 years passed. And then the American William James in his James Lang theory notes about 130 years ago, back in the 1890s, noted that many of our behaviors and our emotional impulses actually occur before thought. In other words, it's not our thinking, our inner chatter our our consciousness and our thoughts that are governing our movement and behavior that a huge significant portion of our behavior is actually activated by unconscious or subconscious principles 
Another 10 years passes, and then Freud, with his publication in 1900 of The Interpretation of Dreams, notes that the mind is actually driven by core unconscious drives that predate our conscious ego and influence us to no ends and are constantly breaking through the repressive defenses that we have and that our conscious ego is nothing but a construct that steers our drives when it works to um, successful uh, outlets. So for example, for instance, the Freud taught that we're all born with aggressive drives and libidinal drives. And that if everything's working appropriately, those drives are very, very much trying to break through, very often seeping into consciousness through Freudian slips and dreams and all that. But that if our egos, our consciousness is doing the job, it steers our aggression into healthy outlets and our sexual drives into healthy outlets. So, okay, uh, one by one, we're breaking away at this perception that the thinking, the thinking aspect of the mind is somehow central, is somehow governing us, is somehow providing us with a core self. But then it really, the, the whole armament of, around this belief that the I, the conscious thought, is running the show really collapses uh, in 1983. And this is probably uh, an event that you're unaware of, but a wonderful neurologist by the name of Benjamin Libet, 37 years ago, did his famous tap studies where he put essentially a button in front of people and they could tap the moment they became aware of the conscious decision to tap. So he says, the moment you think about tapping, tap. What he discovered is that a half second before people would become aware of the decision to tap, their body had already become aware and was already in the motion of making the tap because the decision to tap was not conscious. It was actually driven by unconscious regions of the brain. Libet postulated that the only role of consciousness is not in any way to determine our actions, but simply at times there's enough space between we become aware of something and the actual acting out on it that he proposed that we sometimes can inhibit or abort really, really bad impulses. And that's the sum total of consciousness for Libet. It doesn't create any actions or choices or behaviors. The only thing is it does is at the very last minute, it says, no, I shouldn't do this. And then it waits until another impulse comes up. Libet famously said, we don't have free will, we have free won't. No free will, but free won't. In other words, I won't do that. That's the sum total role of consciousness and thinking. That's the only, besides thinking, turning life into a story, the only other uh, agency it has in our experience is it inhibits really uh, bad ideas. Around the same time, Uh, work by Antonio Damasio with his somatic marker theory comes into development and he shows that people actually don't make decisions consciously. They actually make it using unconscious, uh, scanning unconscious uh, impulses. And uh, his somatic marker theory is that it's instead states of the body expressing a whole wealth of unconscious uh, inclinations are which actually tell us what we should do and what we shouldn't do. So for instance, if you go to a restaurant and you're choosing between two items on a menu, you won't choose rationally whether you want the uh, vegan burger or the tempeh Reuben. <laughs> you actually just choose by which of those two choices makes your body feel more excited. And then you just go along with it. 
continuing on right up until today, a, a few years ago, the great giant human behaviorist, uh, one of my heroes, Robert Sapolsky, uh, published his tome, Behave, which is a masterpiece. And he shows over the course of hundreds of pages of research and clinical studies that the mind is a myriad of factors influencing one another, ex essentially exactly what the Buddha taught. Uh, it's even more complicated than what the Buddha taught in that uh, Sapolsky notes that genetics and evolutionary traits and sociocultural influences and competing countless neural circuits and early attachment experiences and uh, states of the body, whether you have enough glucose or serotonin or whether you're, you've slept enough, allow you to are basically determine the choices and the actions. Um, he states that deliberate cognition or thought is simply a product of unconscious biological brain activity. No more uh, in control than anything else, just a, a, you know, an effect, not a cause. Even Benjamin Labatt's idea that conscious thought allows us to say no, in other words, free won't, uh, Sapolsky criticizes and shows that even our ability to resist temptation, to abort bad ideas, are products of unconscious regions of the brain that we're unaware of. Blood glucose levels, our socioeconomic status, how much sleep, even our prenatal environment during the uh, first nine months of our development. So essentially Sapolsky shows that there is precious little free will or agency of thought and that uh, essentially our, um, the role that thought plays is far less central than we could possibly imagine or that it seems. This is also goes in line with another early teaching of the Buddha known as the Paticca Samuppada. You don't have to know that. It's just uh, essentially the Buddha's um, proposal of how choices and, and behaviors are initiated. And the Buddha notes that first we have early experiences. Those early experiences turn into inclinations. When we make contact with certain situations, we have feelings. All of this is unconscious. These feelings turn into craving impulses. And it's after all of these influences that finally thought arises. That's the last stage. So we're finding this remarkable overlap between the core Dharma and what the Buddha taught. So why is it that thought seems to be so central that we experience our life as being driven by our thinking? Well, uh, thinking is left hemispheric as the great neuroscientist Michael Gazaniga showed. Language is the dominant left hemisphere's primary job. It interprets and explains what ha is happening and it uses very, very descriptive language that seems like it's accurately describing. But the one thing that Gazaniga found was that our thinking is almost invariably much of the time wrong. It's guessing wrong why we do the things we do. It's telling stories after we make decisions, trying to say, okay, this is why I made the decision. A classic example, here's a famous study misattributed arousal. If you split a group of people into two groups and you ask one group of people to climb eight, eight flights of stairs before they go into an interview and the other group you say take the elevator, then after the interview you ask them to rate the attractiveness of the interviewer the people who walked up the stairs will say that the interviewer is more attractive. Why is that? 
It's the same interviewer. Well, it's because in walking up eight flights of stairs, their hearts raised. When they get to the eighth floor and they meet the interviewer, their hearts are pounding like they're experiencing desire and their left hemisphere say, oh, it's because that person's very attractive. Whereas the people who took the elevator, their hearts aren't pounding, they're totally relaxed. And so they are essentially indifferent to the interviewer because it's an interview, it's not a date. This is happening all the time. When with split brain patients, Gazaniga would tell the right hemisphere of the brain without alerting the left, and you can do this with split brain, you can tell somebody to get up and walk out the room and then come back. When the person comes back, you ask their left hemisphere, why did they do that? They won't have a clue. And they'll say, well, because I needed to get a drink. And you'll say, well, did you get a drink? And they'll say, no. V.S. Ramachandran, another giant in neuroscience, showed that, again, the left brain's thinking, its interpretations of why we do the things we do, are extremely unrealistic. In fact, when he found when people have strokes in their right brain, so their left sides are paralyzed, their left hemisphere still works. So they can still think, they can still speak, they can still talk, but they have no accurate grasp anymore on reality. They actually will explain that their paralyzed left hands are not their, are not their hands. They're not their, that's not my arm. They will deny that anything is wrong with them. They will become manic and will, because thinking left by its own devices, will become extremely manic and will take on more than it can chew and it will uh, completely lose any sense of limitation. And eventually people who have, who lose the right brain, the emotional embodied brain, essentially need full-time care. But those that have left hemispheric strokes and maintain their right brain, now these people lose much of their inner chatter, their inner thinking. They lose their ability to communicate through language very often, or much of it. The language that they can use is very poetic and simple. But these are people that don't need full-time care. They can exist very well in the world because they have their entire emotional minds with all of their affects and embodied impulses guiding them. So it turns out that it's not the thinking mind that actually helps us adapt to life and helps us prioritize our attachments, quite the opposite. It's actually the, the emotional right hemisphere that sees the entirety of experience that doesn't break the world down into small little objects and represent it in language. It's actually the, the less happy and optimistic right brain that actually is making the smartest choices for us. In the work of Damasio, he showed that when people lose their ability to feel their bodies through the ventral medial prefrontal cortex, they lose their ability to make any decisions. It's not their thinking mind. And he said their thinking mind can come up with a million different reasons of why they should do this or that or the other thing, but they'll never be able to choose. Whereas it's the non-thinking part that is actually making their choices. On top of all this, with polyvagal theory, the great uh, Stephen Borges shows that the ability of thought to even play any meaningful role is totally de dependent on your, the state of your autonomic nervous system. If you're not in the very narrow realm of your ventral parasympathetic nervous system, if you're either activated in sympathetic arousal, hypervigilance, or down in the more shutdown, then your thoughts will not help you at all. That, and this happens far more frequently than we can possibly imagine. Our thoughts will be just as compelling and seem like they're just as much in control, but they're actually no longer in any way producing even any satisfactory choices whatsoever. As McGilchrist notes, it's the left brain's job simply to represent reality like a map 
represents territory to focus our attention on objects we can grab and consume. But it actually, when push, when push comes to shove, the thinking language-based thinking that's denotative and literal, as he would say, of the left hemisphere, um, pushes us very much in the wrong direction. The Gilchrist says, and I have it here somewhere, uh, on its own, the left hemisphere can't understand things. It can't relate to them or the whole picture. For that one needs the right hemisphere. It's my contention that we rely too much on left hemispheric forms of analysis. By that he means we think back on end, we try to plan, we try to use schematic rational thought at times to make our decisions. But ultimately, as we know from the work of uh, so many neuropsychologists, that ultimately all that does is get us stuck in a mire where we disconnect from so much of the inherent wisdom of the non-language-based regions of the brain. Ancient cultures, as McGilchrist points out, employ predominantly or very often far more right hemispheric use of communication. They use images. They use the kind of right brain language as metaphors and prosodies. It's not denotative and literal. It doesn't represent the world. Ancient cultures literally in their communication in their sacred texts and so forth in their uh, what they left to us are simply recreating the experience of the mind rather than representing the world around it. So why is it that it seems that our thought is somehow driving the show? Well, interestingly, Labat and others showed that even though thinking comes a full half second before our impulses, which are unconscious arise, consciousness plays this wonderful trick. It backdates all of the earlier impulses and makes them seem as if they happen at the exact same time as thinking. So we perceive our actions and our behaviors as being driven by our thoughts. But actually, if you observe people in a clinical setting, you see that all of the impulses start a half second earlier. So it's just a perceptual trick that makes it seem that thinking is guiding the show. When the mind mistakes, mistakes the map for the actual world, when it mistakes our inner chatter for what's real around us, in the old Buddhist metaphor, it's like we become dogs who, if you point you know, to a moon <clears throat> and there's a dog, the, the dog doesn't look at the moon, the dog looks at your finger pointing. And we fall into this idea that the map, the finger is reality, which is the moon, it's not. The inner stories, the thoughts, the labels, the concepts, the uh, all they are, are representations. Gerd Gergen Geigerenzer, excuse me, I always pronounce his name wrong, Geigerenzer, uh, famous, uh, psychologist, neuropsychologist in Germany, notes that our fast, unconscious gut feelings are actually quite sophisticated, that they are contained in them really, really fast heuristics or uh, principles to them that are often far more accurate in making decisions than the slow processes of rational thought. In fact, he uses some famous examples. If you ask people to, you know, if you know nothing about uh, soccer, and I said, which team is more successful, Real Madrid or Levante? Many people would quite correctly say Real Madrid because you would have heard of them. Or you might have heard of a team like Liverpool 
or Manchester United. And you'd say those names because you've heard of them and you hadn't heard of the other team, Levante, say, but you'd be right because there's actually a lot of wisdom packed into that very fast thought. If you tried to figure it out, you'd very often come up with the wrong answer. The right hemisphere actually makes decisions based on far more information than our thinking mind does. When people present us with opportunities, we just hear the words they say. But when someone, if we're more trusting our embodied response, when somebody presents us with an opportunity, we'll actually pay attention to their facial expressions, their body movement, their emotional tone, whether they're making eye contact. And all of those factors, your unconscious emotional processes will be um, putting together and they'll come up with an answer. If they trust the person, they'll say, go for it and your body will relax. But if there's something wrong, if they're not making good eye contact, if they're facial tics and expressions betray that there's more to the story than what they're telling you in their job opportunity or in what, whatever they're trying to get you to agree on. If you don't trust your body, if you try to figure it out through thought, you'll make the entire wrong decision. It's your ability to feel what your body is telling you that will actually allow you to make the smarter choice. So, the big point here is that hoping to be guided through life by thought is not only a perceptual illusion, but it also, as the Buddha proposed, if we believe that thought is our identity, that it's driving us, that it's to be the most trusted faculty in the brain, that it will lead to what the Buddha called dukkha or suffering. The left hemisphere, our inner thought, is subject to be hijacked all the time by uh, states of anxiety. And then instead of being our friend and telling us why we shouldn't be anxious, our thinking faculty of the left hemisphere interpreter will catastrophize and give us a million different reasons to be petrified and why nothing will turn out well for us. Or if we've in our early life experience been subjected to uh, caregivers that were not safe, were not reliable, who were critical and judgmental, then we will internalize an inner critic that will be shaming and judgmental and will hijack our thoughts and can create endless streams of inner verbiage telling us that we are failing in life. But if we trust in the body, which doesn't as much internalize those inner verbiage and those uh, that kind of indoctrination into the superego and societal cultural influences, then we actually have a far better chance of making smarter decisions. It's this, to this end that we now arrive at our practice, what the Buddha called mindfulness or sati inverts the hierarchy of normal human awareness. Instead of the normal priorities we have, which is we pay attention most to our thoughts, which is cognition. Then we pay attention secondarily to our emotional states of mind. Then if we're lucky, we check in once in a while with our gut feelings, once in a great while. And lastly, we pay attention to the manifestations of the nervous system as manifested in the breath, you know, how are we breathing and so forth. The Buddha switches it and turns it all on his head and says, we're not going to prioritize the thinking faculty. In fact, we're going to start in every moment of awareness, first checking in with how we breathe and how just our body basically feel is. And then the second, we're going to check our gut feelings. Is our stomach tight? Is our chest contracted? Is our shoulders up? Is our jaw relaxed or uncomfortable? And then we're going to check our state of mind. Am I anxious, joyous? Am I tired? Am I 
and a kind of dissociative brain fog. What is the state of my consciousness? And then last, we check in with thinking. Now that means that the Buddha is acknowledging and he's flipping the order because he knows that we pay so little attention to the breath and feelings and even emotional states of consciousness. And we're so predisposed to being reliant on our thinking that it leads to uh, so much of this feeling of isolation, uniqueness, disconnection, because the left hemisphere does not prioritize interpersonal connection. The left hemisphere's sense of self is I am different from everybody else. When people have strokes in their left hemisphere and they lose language, but they maintain their right embodied, you know, poetic language, uh, negative emotions, uh, experience, they actually have an expanded sense of self where they no longer view themselves as in alone in this body, disconnected from others. So that this is in many ways, the enlightenment that is mindfulness. It asks that we step outside of our Western indoctrinated, uh, imbalanced state of relying on solely left hemispheric processes, which as McGilchrist notes also is why we've used and exploited the earth and why we are so hostile to other cultures because the left thinking, left hemispheric thinking mind views in terms of me and everyone else. And when we step into the embodied feeling that is communicated to us through the right brain, we are actually connecting with a far greater transpersonal, connected, uh, more accurate appraisal of the world around us. Mindfulness does involve left hemispheric uh, ability to steer awareness. The right brain's, when it governs attention, will steer it around to anything that concerns our security or safety. Uh, will jump around very often because its job is to scan the environment around us. So the ability to actually focus attention on something that's neutral like the breath or on our feelings actually does involve the left hemisphere quite straightforwardly. Focusing attention is in fact a left hemispheric faculty. We are paying attention without any judgment or criticism without any uh, views or opinions. We're simply noting what is the breath like right now? Or what are my feelings like right now? Or what is my states of consciousness? Uh, what is my emotional state like right now? That's my Dharma talk. I hope something in it was interesting to you. And now we're actually going to put all of this uh, stuff into practice. We're actually going to do mindfulness so that we can have this experience of what it is like to invert the order uh, away from the overly left-brained overly interpretive representational thought centric mind and we're going to move it to a more bilateral place where we can integrate all the wisdom of the body all the wisdom of our states of consciousness and our and other facets of our experience so let's practice so i'm gonna take my hat off I'm going to find a really comfortable seated position and inviting you to do the same closing our eyes or looking at the ground in front of us taking a nice full in breath very long exhalation. 
So the, the more emphasis on the inhalation, the more we are uh, activating, enlivening, bringing energy into the body, the more we place the energy on the exhalation, which is releasing, letting go, we are down modulating the autonomic nervous system, longer out breaths are more parasympathetic. In other words, they down modulate us to, from overly anxious and hypervigilant, they allow us to relax. On the other hand, if somebody is in a state of shock, they're in a state of shutdown, what do we ask them to do? We say, breathe deep in. So if you are feeling tired, sluggish, beaten down, uh, out of it, brain fog, then what you want to do is place the emphasis on the inhalations. And so this is the very much the most important foundational practice of the first foundation of mindfulness, which is the state of the body as it manifests, particularly in the breath. So we're going to, for a little while, breathe together. And as the Buddha noted in the Anapati, Anapanasati uh, practice, awareness of breath, the idea is to know when you're breathing out, breathing in long, or breathing in short, breathing out long or short. And can you become aware of the breath moving through the entire body? And can you use the breath to relax your body? So we'll just, starting any place that you want in the body, imagine you're breathing, for instance, into your belly. If your belly feels tight, just breathe into it. Feel the energy and awareness in your belly that's brought with the breath. And then as you release the breath, soften. So you can use the breath to move around the body, become aware by focusing on the sensations that occur during the inhalation in that area of the body. And then as you breathe out, use the releasing, the sighing, the letting go of the exhalation as a way to relax your body. We'll just do that for a while without any uh, guidance from me. Just settle in, bring attention to the breath and the body and if you really find that you're drifting away from being aware of the body, you can count. For instance, how long are your in-breath? So we can breathe in one, two, three, four, hold, and then breathe out one, two, three, four, five, six. So count in your mind the length of the in and the out, or you can just count up to 10 your breath, one on the in, two on the out, three on the in, four on the out, five on the in, six on the out, etc. And then once you get to 10, count back down.
So for the next foundation of mindfulness, which is feelings, I'm going to invite you to bring to mind a recent experience that you'd like to process or an important decision that you have to make where you feel perhaps even stuck. Just bring to mind an image of this recent experience or this important decision, but don't think about it. By which I mean, just hold some resonant static image, but don't allow the inner verbiage, inner chatter, inner talk to kick in. Instead, I just want you to hold something that uh, reminds you of this experience or decision. And for the next bit, we're just going to see what happens in terms of feelings. What do we really feel about this choice or this event in our life? So while you hold the image in your mind, pay attention to your belly does it feel relaxed or does it feel tight? Your chest, does your chest feel contracted or open? Does the breath move into it easier? Do your shoulders start to tense or release? Does your throat feel slightly tight? Does your jaw clench or does your, the muscles on your forehead, do they furrow or release? Do your eyes settle or do they become suddenly jumpy? The front of the body, the cranial nerves, the vagal nerve running down the front of the body. Just be aware while you hold an image in your mind associated with some recent experience or some important choice.
So now for the third foundation of mindfulness, you can either keep holding the same image or choice, memory in mind, or you could bring together, bring to mind something else. But while you hold the image in place, whether new or from the previous second foundation, what I'd like you to do now is become aware of the quality of mind. Does the mind feel suddenly very bright or dark? Does it feel awake and alert or tired? Does it feel expansive or very narrow and confined? Is there a sense of anxiousness and jumpiness? Or does, is there a sense of contentedness? What is the state of mind when we reflect on this recent experience or important choice we have to make? Again, not thinking. Just connecting with all the other experience besides the nexus of inner chatter or thought. And now we can move to the uh, last foundation, the fourth. And in it, we're going to practice a little of what psychologists today called, call metacognition. We're going to be aware of what kind of thoughts we have about our experience. So again, using the same image or material. And this time, while you allow yourself to become aware of the thoughts that are associated, just note if the thoughts are constant, ongoing, a flood of inner verbiage or is there a lot of space, openness, time? Is there silence at times in the mind? 
Are the thoughts really angry, aversive, or are the thoughts perhaps craving, wanting more, wanting something else, wanting constantly life to be, uh, wanting to get something to fulfill us? Do the thoughts become scattered? Is it that we go all over the place with our thoughts when we hold this reflection in our mind? Or do the thoughts become quite settled and calm, kind? How does thinking represent and interpret this recent experience or choice that we have to make. So at this time, I'm going to, in a moment, ring the bell. And you can use the sound to very slowly, taking your time, opening your eyes. And just try to bring with you this practice as you move on through the rest of the evening. This checking in with how is our breathing? Is it conducive to ease or to energizing us? And how is our body and mind outside of our thinking responding to all the events around us? Not turning our back on all of this wisdom, but to, in fact, begin to integrate the entire knowledge base 
of all the different neural circuits and all the different processes, experiences of our life. Thank you for listening, and um, so um, hoping that one uh, will stick around for some questions. It was uh, would like to note if you'd like to support my work um, as a Buddhist pastor in Brooklyn, New York. Um, you know, obviously only if you're financially capable of it. Uh, my Venmo is Dharma. D H A R M A P U N X N Y C Dharma Punks N Y C 